You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The people I have are hardworking people that are getting hurt at the grocery store, they're getting hit hard at the gas station. In Obergefell, the court said, no, we know better than you guys do, and now every state must sanction and, and permit gay marriage. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. We are working to protect women's right to control their lives. It's clear to me that... When it comes to this congressional district, people are looking for another option. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It is hot, hot, hot outside, but is it hot enough for the president of the United States to declare a climate crisis? We're going to preview the announcement that President Biden is expected to make tomorrow, as well as the upcoming January 6th hearing and the latest on Steve Bannon's trial, which is ongoing today, plus a look at what Congress is doing, trying to move two major pieces of legislation, one of them that would give billions of dollars to the semiconductor industry, and another that could help millions of Americans. Americans with health care, but doesn't nearly go as far as Democrats were initially hoping for. I'm Emily Wilkins. Hopefully Joe Matthew is off keeping cool somewhere. I'm super excited today uh, because we've got a really great guest joining us. Um, it's someone who I constantly bug all day, every day uh, to try and keep me up to date with what exactly is going on with Congress. My Bloomberg government, Bloomberg government colleague, Zach Cohn's joining us today. Zach, thank you so much for being here. Um, I know that for the last week that you and I, particularly you, have really been following a lot of this debate around the semiconductor bill. And we're expecting a procedural vote in the Senate on that one today, right? Right. I mean, that vote could come literally any minute. I've got the the Senate floor pulled up here on the computer. Uh, It's been chips, chips, chips all the time over in the Senate this week. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is trying to get a procedural vote through for um, a really major semiconductor manufacturing incentives bill. Key to this is the $52 billion in direct subsidies for those chips, as well as a a tax investment uh, tax credit that uh, could be included as well. But there's some last minute wrangling over some of the provisions in there. Um, So we could see an initial vote on that um, and potentially more votes in uh, the days to come. Lots of drama here trying to figure out if they can actually wind up getting a vote today. Zach, I did want to check, though, because I remember Republican Senator John Cornyn, last week he kind of seemed a little bit sour on this. He's, you know, He and McConnell were kind of saying, well, if Democrats are working on reconciliation, we're not really sure about moving ahead with this bill. 
What's changed? Right. So the the reconciliation bill, or or formerly known as uh, Build Back Better, has sort of been hanging out in the background. Both Senator Joe Manchin, Senator Chuck Schumer have been engaged in sort of private negotiations over some form of bill that can pass uh, on a party line vote through the Senate and avoid a Republican filibuster. Um, That bill has basically come down to, at this point, uh, some legislation on drug pricing and on Affordable Care Act or Obamacare subsidies. And that's basically all they've been able to agree to. And while Republicans have said, look, we're not going to negotiate on a bipartisan bill while you're having this partisan negotiation on the side. They've basically said that bill is probably small enough. We can go ahead and move forward on this CHIPS funding, which they see not only as important, but really as a national security concern. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that, because I know Commerce Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo was in the Capitol last week. She talked to senators, she talked to House members, and her message really seemed to be that this is incredibly urgent, not just for manufacturers, tech producers, car producers, but also for national security. Right. Basically, right now, that you've got companies like Intel and other semiconductor manufacturers that are weighing basically which countries to start building these semiconductor manufacturing plants in. And the United States would obviously like to have a piece of that action, not just for the, the economic benefits, which is something that lawmakers like to talk about, but also for the fact that uh, without a sort of steady supply of these chips, not only can U.S. manufacturers not count on them for sort of domestic goods, but also for uh, key military equipment, drones, planes, you name it, that they really need in order to build uh, that particular machinery. And so uh, Gina Raimondo has been sort of pressing the case on a national security front in uh, private classified briefings, first with the senators, then with members of the House. Um, And that seems to have gotten the ball rolling on getting Democrats and Republicans alike to recognize that while there's been a broader effort to try to get a China competitiveness bill known as the Innovation and Competition Act, the American Competes Act, it goes by a couple different names, they're really moving to endless on this. Frontiers. Endless, <laughs> endless Frontiers. Endless Frontiers was always the best name. The Bipartisan so Innovation Act is also a new one they've thrown in there. Uh, and they've basically said, look, let's move just the chips funding, just the semiconductor funding. We can come back to all these other issues later. Um, are they going to come back to any of these issues later? That's a good question and something we've been trying to figure out this week. But without this chips funding, which has kind of been the engine underneath this, this bill this entire time that's been bogged down in sort of bicameral House and Senate negotiations, for you know months now, you know remember that the the first uh, version of this bill, uh, the Innovation Competition Act, passed the Senate in June of 2021, um, and so they have they have really sort of dragged their feet on this bill and have not been able to reach uh, some really key decisions, not just on. Um, say, the, the trade title and sort of changing you know trade policy in this country, but also on things like how to manage diplomacy with China and other major competitors. And so whether lawmakers can sort of have the, the impetus and the priority to get to an agreement on some other provisions seems unlikely if they don't have sort of the ticking clock of trying to get the semiconductor funding done. I mean, speaking of large bills that have been slimmed down, uh, I mean, you mentioned reconciliation. We have to touch on the bill that is formerly known as Build Back Better, was called Build Back Mansion, I think, until (laughs) Mansion walked away from a good chunk of it at this point. I mean, Zach, when I talk to folks in the House, there's there's a frustration with what has gone on. Uh, Congressman Andy Levin was on yesterday. He described it as kind of like Lucy taking away the football at the last moment before Charlie Brown kicks it. And I'm wondering what you are hearing, too, in the Senate, because it seems like for the House, you know, you can usually rally enough folks together. The Senate is where things get really sticky. Are we going to have enough to pass a reconciliation package with just the two health care provisions? And when can you see that going? 
You could see a, a reconciliation bill you know, as soon as next week if they sort of get the uh, the final details done. Uh, like I said, on this drug pricing provision, they're going before the, the Senate's top rulemaker, the Senate parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, on dun, Thursday, dun, dun, dun. just to make sure that it sort of follows all the budget rules that they have to meet in order to avoid a Republican filibuster. And I won't bother getting too much into the weeds on that. And then they've also got these ACA subsidies that they want to get included. That all could get done before Congress leaves uh, for the recess. I think the House is talking about actually staying in an extra week, although I, I think I saw that, that the House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, uh, apparently has uh, vacation plans down in North Carolina the third week of August. So we you know, don't want to mess with that at all. Uh, but certainly they could get something done before that August recess, which is kind of sacrosanct here in Washington. Uh, whether they can come back and do the rest on maybe taxes or climate after Joe Manchin gets those inflation numbers he's been looking for, that's an entirely different story. I mean, it is wild to think, though, because we know that for the Senate process, they do have to go through a lot, right? They've got to go through those all-night voteramas. This is not something that's going to be done quickly. If we don't see an actual reconciliation bill next week, is there any way that this actually gets done before they leave for August? It could. It could. Yeah, that will be the sort of voterama that they'll have to do um, where— Normally, for bills to come to the floor, there's an agreement reached between Democrats and Republicans to say we're going to go vote on X number of amendments just to sort of speed things along. But the Senate, you know, also known as the world's greatest deliberative body, um, in this case, it does sort of allow any senator to offer as many amendments for votes as they want with limited debate. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen dozens of votes on reconciliation packages in the past and during this Congress where Democrats, you know, not just on this bill where they had one initially to sort of set up this process, but also recall uh, for the $1.9 trillion COVID rescue plan, the American rescue plan. Um, and so senators are, are no stranger to these late nights, but certainly they'll have to budget some time for them. For sure. And Zach, I also want to touch on a slightly different topic because you and I got to do a really interesting Ed Board panel um, with the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, Hakeem Jeffries, um, also sometimes referred to as the heir apparent to be the next uh, leader of the Democratic Caucus if when Pelosi decides to go. So really interesting person. Um, and we talked with him a little bit just about different priorities, how those needed to get done. And he had something really interesting to say about how Democrats get their agenda through. Yeah, we only have either two options, change Joe Manchin's mind or gain at least two Senate seats to add to a 50-seat uh, majority with individuals, you know, who are willing uh, to act decisively on the issues of the day in areas like defending reproductive freedom, enacting some form of comprehensive immigration reform, protecting the right to vote, and certainly addressing crisis. Democrats have two options, change Joe Manchin's mind or gain two Senate seats. Zach, I know you've been following a lot of the Senate races across the country. What is the likelihood now that Democrats are actually going to be able to pick up two seats in the Senate next year? They're certainly better than the chances of Democrats actually holding the majority in the House where Hakeem Jeffries, you know, lives and breathes. You know, you've got places like Arizona and Nevada and Georgia where you've got Democrats facing really tough reelection races. 
but then you've got other states like Pennsylvania um, or North Carolina where you've got open seats where Republicans are retiring, where Democrats feel decent about their chances, or maybe Wisconsin where Senator Ron Johnson is up for re-election. Maybe they can flip that seat. New Hampshire also on the board um, while uh, Senator Maggie Hassan there won re-election by a, or won her first term rather by a very narrow margin, a couple hundred votes if I remember correctly. Um, the, the Republican field hasn't exactly stacked up against expectations. So um, the Senate does typically um, buck historical trends. It's not like the House where you can expect the majority party to lose seats um, in the Senate because each senator has you know, a sort of a bigger name recognition and is able to sort of build their own uh, name ID and, and their own fundraising for sure. And Democrats have been particularly good on that front. You could see Democrats you know, even pick up seats if they're able to sort of hold off these Republican challenges. But in a national environment like this, I think you got to give the early edge to Republicans. Zach, I'm going to give you 10 seconds for this one. What is the Senate race to watch this year? Oh, definitely Nevada. Um, and not just because of Nevada, but they've also got uh, three house races that are really interesting out of the out of Las Vegas and the suburbs there. Um, it's got some of the highest inflation in the country. you got Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is running for a second term. It'll be a really good one. So what I'm hearing you say, Zach, is that uh, Bloomberg government needs to send us to Vegas. That sounds like a jackpot idea. <laughs> Zach Cohen, Bloomberg Government's congressional reporter. Stick around. We're assembling the panel next to continue talking about Biden's potential climate crisis. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's Emily Wilkins. I'm filling in for Joe today on Sound On. Well, we are still waiting to see if the Senate is going to be taking a procedural vote today on pieces of legislation that would give more than $50 billion to semiconductors and chips. Uh, And here to discuss really the scope and importance of this bill, we're going to assemble the all-star panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, I wanted to just begin with the idea of what happens if this bill does not get done. It seems like it's pretty close right now, but we always know that things can go wrong at the last minute. And Rick, I'm wondering if this doesn't wind up happening, are the American people going to see Congress as having failed in this arena? Yeah, I think this is a uh, difficult one to really communicate to the American people. I mean, that concept that we're attracting and trying to hold and spur uh, you know, microchip manufacturing in the United States. I mean, it's just, it, you know, the, the, the public hasn't really been brought in on this debate, right? It's not some urgent thing that has been in the top of the news for a long time. And in fact, if you look at the newspapers, it's hard to even see coverage on this. So it, it may or may not resonate, certainly not with voters in the upcoming election. We haven't seen these kinds of things uh, in any of the current polling. Uh, but um, look, I mean, I, I haven't seen much happen in Congress that's got this much initiative behind it right now and and, and a bipartisan approach to it that, um, you know, usually indicates they're going to get somewhere uh, across the finish line. 
I mean, Rick, though, isn't there something to be said about some of the supply chain shortages that we've seen at this point and the need to make sure that, you know, even if Americans aren't aware that this chip spill is being worked on, they do understand what it's like to wait six months to get a car or that their assembly line shut down for a number of weeks. I mean, could those things wind up having some sort of impact? Sure. Uh, I think you see that already, right? That's been going on really since uh, the uh, uh, full impact of the pandemic hit in 2020. Uh, we've had these kinds of supply chain shortages. I mean, we, you know, also in the meat industry and also in, you know, uh, other non-chip related businesses. But I, I do think people are frustrated. Uh, I think it's come uh, out of the government hide. Uh, and unfortunately for this administration, it's come out of their hide. Uh, to where their ability to uh, actually create change and improve the current condition of those kinds of uh, backlogs have been really limited. Um, uh, and, and, and I think that's the concern a lot of politicians I talk to. They don't want to make this sound like all of a sudden, you know, they're going to unleash this torrent of chips into the market <laughs> and uh, you're, you're going to get your car in time and that refrigerator you've been waiting for. You know, you didn't even know you had a chip in your refrigerator. Uh, but uh, I, I think that's part of the caution is that this is really a, a midterm strategy to try and sustain and attract those chip manufacturers into the country, a lot of which is already happening, uh, but that um, you know you have to spur the industry to continue there, and that's where these subsidies come in. For sure. And, you know, even sort of mentioning that this is something that Democrats have used as messaging. I mean, often when you talk to Democrats about what they're going to do about inflation, this is a bill that they often bring up. I mean, you ask them sort of if they think it's going to have any immediate impact. Most of them admit it's going to take a while. But this is certainly something that Democrats at least seem poised to use as part of their larger messaging. Um the other interesting aspect of this, though, I mean, for so long we've heard about this chip shortage, chip shortage, chip shortage. The Wall Street Journal had this really interesting op-ed today uh, saying that, you know, this bill, it started about it more than a year ago at this point, and things have changed. That supply has increased. And they actually said uh, that this bill would be corporate welfare. Uh, Jeannie, I just wanted to get your, your take on that. Do you think that that's something that, that could wind up playing into this larger debate? It could. And it was a really fascinating editorial. I, too, read it. And it creates some strange bedfellows because, of course, you have a combination of free market, you know, opposition on the Republican side, on the right. And this idea you hear from people like Bernie Sanders about a bailout for big business. And while I don't personally abide by this idea, there is some truth to that. You look at the tax credits alone. It's double the R&D for all other industries through 20 2025, leading some people to say this is a enormous pork bill for one single industry. And imagine if other industries start to ask for it. And to the point that the Wall Street Journal editorial was making, while this may have made sense in the midst of COVID, now that interest rates are up and inflation is up, the demand is down, there's not as much of a need for it potentially. So I do think this is what leads us to the reality of this. And Rick is right. It needs bipartisan support. If it gets through the Senate, 
Pelosi's not going to be able to push it through the House with just Democrats alone. They're going to they're going to have some fallout who see this as a bailout, and so she's going to have to get bipartisan support in the House to push this through as well. So it is a really interesting conundrum, and I would just give kudos to Ramondo you mentioned, and also to Chuck Schumer for hammering home the case that this is a security threat, both economically and nationally, if it doesn't get done. Ramondo said if it doesn't get done this week, China wins. So that's how seriously they're taking this. Jeannie, I'm going to put you on the spot here with a with a quick 20-second answer. What are the odds that Democrats and Republicans can get the other portions of the bill they're leaving on the cutting room floor done before the end of the year? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. Really quickly, <laughs> I, I'm never very optimistic, so I don't think so. I think if they get this, they're going to just get this straight bill. <laughs> I don't think they're going to get more. Jeannie, Rick, um, I know that we will be chatting with you guys in just a little bit. Uh, but next, up next, we're going to be previewing that January 6th primetime hearing on Thursday and the Steve Bannon trial going on today with Mark Zaid. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Well, now excited to welcome to the show Brad Moss. He is a lawyer specializing in national security, federal employment and security clearance law, as well as the deputy executive director of the James Madison Project. And I know that he's sort of been following so many of the ins and outs of not just the January 6th panel, but also many of the things that are going on around the wider investigation. Brad, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I'm wondering if we can just sort of start at the 30,000 foot view here. Why is Steve Bannon on trial? And what did we learn today from that trial? Sure. So Steve Bannon is on trial for the simple fact that he received the congressional subpoena from the January 6th committee to testify about what he observed and knew about the events leading up to and then on January 6th, as well as to provide a whole mess of documents. He straight up refused to do any of it. He didn't testify. He didn't come in to testify. He didn't produce any documents. He didn't produce a privilege, privilege log about documents he might have produced if they weren't covered by privilege, nothing. He simply said, I'm covered by executive privilege by the former president. I'm not coming in. You can't make me you know, for lack of a better phrase. And he was referred for criminal contempt by Congress to the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice indicted him. So how is that argument going for him, that he has executive privilege? Because he did work as Trump strategist for some time. Correct. It's gone nowhere for him. So mind you, all the events that took place leading up to January 6th, Steve Bannon was a civilian. He was no longer working for the government. He was no longer a White House aide. He filed a bunch of motions at the beginning of this criminal proceeding trying to argue that he was covered by privilege, that his actions were authorized by the former president, that he was relying on guidance from legal counsel. The arguments were all thrown out. The judge rejected them all. He tried to push off the trial a couple times. The argument was rejected. The judge said, no, we're going to trial. And today we started it. The jury was seated. Opening arguments and the first witnesses began. This thing is going to be done by the end of the week. Oh, wow. That quickly. I mean, is it looking good? It doesn't sound like then it's looking good for him at this point in time. I mean, what what could this mean, the outcome of this trial mean for others who have gotten a subpoena from the January 6th committee and also not bothered to then appear in front of the committee? Sure. So for the most part, you know, almost overwhelming number of people who have been subpoenaed by the committee or been asked to cooperate have come forward and provide a testimony. We've certainly seen a lot of that in the January 6th hearings. The people who haven't are Trump's 
most, by and large, Trump's inner circle. You think of Peter Navarro, who was already indicted. You think of Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino, the White House aides, who were referred for contempt, but DOJ declined to prosecute them. Uh, those individuals are the, are the small, select few who have declined. They will likely, at this point, just play it out the way they already had. Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino know they're not going to be indicted at this point, so they don't care. But it does go forward for purposes of this prosecution, assuming there is a conviction. It goes forward to the point that Congress does have some power here. They can compel people to testify, and if the people refuse, there are punishments. There is criminal liability. I also want to take a minute and just spin this forward to Thursday night when we are going to be hearing the next public hearing from the January 6th panel. Uh, We're going to be hearing from former Trump Deputy White House Press Secretary Sarah Matthews, as well as former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger. Both of them are expected to testify. We heard today from House Democratic Caucus Vice Chair Pete Aguilar, who told reporters the testimony will show how how former President Trump did not stop did not act to stop the attack on the Capitol. We'll continue to detail, specifically this hearing, that failed leadership, how Donald Trump failed to take that oath seriously. Brad, I'm wondering what you're going to be looking for uh, from this hearing on Thursday night. Yeah, my plan with this hearing is I want to see how much more they flesh out, and this is that personal knowledge that these two witnesses can provide, of once Trump was back in the White House and the breach had occurred at the Capitol, leading up for those several hours while we all watched on TV live as the mob you know, infiltrated the Capitol and put members of Congress and the vice president at risk, what was actually going on at the White House? We've heard some testimony, both live from Cassidy Hutchinson, as well as some taped depositions of various White House staff about what they recall the president doing, but few have been close enough to have actually observed him directly as opposed to having heard it from other people, like hearing it from Mark Meadows. So it'll be interesting with these two individuals who are very close to the president, part of his inner circle, what they can elaborate on, what they can flesh out in terms of how much the president knew about truly what was going on there, what was he actually doing, what actions was he taking to stop the riot. And can I ask why it's so important that we look at what Trump did and did not do to stop that riot? Is there some sort of criminal charge that's related to that? Could this lead to some sort of criminal charge down the road? So so it's two part. One is obviously political and historical, and it's the idea of outlining exactly what After all these hearings, we've seen all the things that he did leading up to January 6th, the plans he put in place trying to prevent the certification of Joe Biden as president, all those steps he took to try to influence the campaign and DOJ and all that, that the actual date of January 6th, he gives a speech and then the breach occurs, whether or not he was deliberately, whether he was knowingly letting it continue without regard for the safety of the members of Congress, for the vice president, and for the certification process. And if he was doing it, because he wanted things to be halted. He wanted to be able to have another way to prevent the certification. That's both political and historical in terms of making sure the public understands what occurred. But it's also a potential criminal issue, whether it comes down to conspiracy to obstruct official proceedings and any number of potential criminal angles that we've seen with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. That's what we're going to look to see if they flush out.
a lot to unpack there. Certainly will be a interesting blockbuster hearing. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. That was Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Stick around. We're about to dive into President Biden's announcement tomorrow on an executive order on climate. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. The UK has reached a record high heat wave today. And while we are not in the United Kingdom, it feels pretty awful outside in D.C. I believe it also feels pretty awful outside in New York. Uh, now, not many people are, are being spared uh, with this very hot summer weather. And when it talks about the heat, I mean, we're, we're kind of joking a little bit here, but being very serious, there is a lot of discussion right now about what needs to happen in terms of climate. And it's gotten so intense that Jeff Merkley, senator from Oregon, has asked President Biden to declare a climate emergency, stating that it's very unlikely at this point that the Senate's going to be able to do anything more. They had that climate package. But Senator Joe Manchin, he's walked away from it, uh, at least for now. And even even though he's under pressure from his colleagues, uh, Manchin's kind of really staked out his position here. This is what he said the other day. I don't represent the, the states they represent. And the people I have are hardworking people that are getting hurt hard at the grocery store. They're getting hit hard at the gas station and everything they pay for. So now the ball is in President Joe Biden's court and we'll be watching tomorrow when he gives a speech at a shuttered coal fired power plant in Massachusetts where he's going to lay out the next steps here. Uh, Senator Merkley's call, called for a climate emergency. Uh, we still are learning exactly how far this is going to go. To discuss this more, we're bringing back our all-star panel, Jeannie Shianzano, Rick Davis. Uh, Jeannie, uh, what can Biden actually do here? And is this climate emergency any different from any other executive order the president might put out? Yeah, he's getting a lot of push. You mentioned Jeff Merkley leading that charge from the Senate that essentially this legislation is dead. We're going to be facing a divided Congress potentially in a matter of months. And so now is the time to act via executive order. And he's certainly pushing for this climate emergency. And there are powers available to the president to execute that. Some of them, though, require Congress to authorize, which is not going to happen. And, um, you know, we still don't know. No, at least the last I checked whether, in fact, Biden's going to go ahead and do that. What I'm hearing is he's going to announce that he's going to take steps on climate change, but stop short tomorrow in Somerset, Massachusetts, of declaring a national emergency. So we have to sort of wait and see how they're going to respond. But certainly they're frustrated and they're getting a lot of push. And of course, it is a 
perfect situation of a, sort of a perfect storm, if you will, for the president, because on the one hand, he's got inflation, high oil prices and the heat in the United States. And you've been talking about around the world. People are really focused on climate change right now and looking at a U.S. Congress that can act and a president who, by many estimations, seems unwilling to do what his powers allow him to do. And that's a real challenge for this White House. Absolutely. And another thing for Biden to try and keep in mind here is that if he goes too far with what he is proposing, he does risk uh, isolating uh, Senator Joe Manchin. I mean, he's walked away from some of these climate proposals, but there is some hope that maybe he'd come back after September and there's still that major health care bill that Democrats are interested in moving through. I mean, Rick Davis, what's kind of the, the balance that Biden has to walk here on this announcement tomorrow? Yeah, Emily, I think you've really uh, figured out that that the dynamic is much more complicated than just having, you know, a right to be able to administratively do these these things on climate. Uh, Joe Manchin is the key to future activity in the Senate for the next two years. I mean, this is not something that potentially could change tomorrow. I mean, we've been talking about the elections. They could be right back in a 50-50 Senate and potentially a House that's Republican. And so they need Joe Manchin to stop the Senate from doing things that Republicans want them to do. And so, you know, this is this is a, a political dynamic that has great implications with policy. And and you got to believe Manchin when he says, I'm willing to negotiate on climate. Uh, I'm just not willing to negotiate on on this reconciliation bill, which, by the way, has been pretty consistent throughout the course of the last year and a half. Biden's got some options, you know, that he could do uh, administratively, and he should do those things. Uh, He doesn't need to have an emergency declaration. You know, there are many things he can do around pollution from cars and and to put a little uh, pressure on uh, Joe Manchin by, you know, talking about doing some things around coal and gas-fired power plant uh, regulation. So uh, I think he could bring him along to the negotiating table if he wants to put some heat on Manchin. And Jeannie, I'm wondering as well, for some of these Democratic voters who were expecting this big climate package, they're now not getting that. They saw that Supreme Court ruling limiting the powers of the EPA. How is it, how important is it for Biden with his actions to show voters that he still is, that the Democrats really are still the party that's pushing the climate agenda? As we see in all the polls, voters on both sides really frustrated by the lack of action on on these and many other issues in Washington, D.C. And of course, Biden bears the brunt of that being the president. The buck really does stop with him. But his challenge is great because while people voice concern about climate change, it doesn't nearly rise in the polls to the level of something they express like inflation, jobs, those kinds of issues, the economy. Those are the issues they really vote on they really get out on. So he's got to walk a really fine line here of showing that he is taking this seriously and he's moving forward as best he can with some kind of agenda to Rick's point, working with Joe Manchin. On the other hand, poll-wise, politically, it's most important that he focuses on inflation and gas prices because that's what people say still is the number one issue for them going to the polls.
So we've obviously got that announcement tomorrow. We did just get notice that the Senate will be taking that first procedural motion on the, the big semiconductor spending bill. But there are also two smaller bills that are going through the House. They're really interesting because after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, Democrats are now rushing to codify other Supreme Court rulings recently. Uh, these include uh, the right to contraception as well as uh, marriage equality, the right for same-sex marriage. Now, the House is expected to vote Thursday on the Right to Contraception Act, which would codify access for birth control. Uh, North Carolina Democrat Kathy Manning sponsored the bill, and she told reporters today that Republicans are trying to limit the accessibility of contraception. We are working to protect women's right to control their lives. Our opponents are working to take women's rights away. So that's the bill that's going on Thursday. And then today, lawmakers in the House voted on the bill for same-sex marriage equality. Uh, and Senator Ted Cruz uh, became the latest Republican to voice his opposition to the Supreme Court's ruling to legalize gay marriage. He said on an episode of his podcast, The Cloakroom, that the ruling was, quote, clearly wrong. In Obergefell, the court said, no, we know better than you guys do. And now every state must uh, must sanction and and permit gay marriage. Um, I think that decision was clearly wrong when it was decided. Um, It was the court overreaching whether the court will reverse it. I, I will say so in Dobbs, what the Supreme Court said is Roe is different because it's the only one of the cases that involves the taking of a human life. And that's qualitatively different. I agree with that proposition. So for these bills, Rick, are they really just messaging bills or is there a real uh, actual concern that the Supreme Court is going to overturn some of its other uh, big cases that granted these rights to same sex marriage and contraception? Yeah, I have no doubt that uh, the Democratic sponsors of these bills have a fear that the Supreme Court is going to. Um, you know, pursue this line into other privacy-related matters like same-sex marriage and contraception. And, and so I, I don't doubt their uh, genuineness of it. But uh, the reality is that, that they're not likely to have success around it. And so are they just kind of bills to position the party uh, and create challenges for Republicans who might have to walk down the plank and vote against these things, which they really don't want to do? So, um you know, I think I think it goes both ways. I think there's a lot of you know genuineness in the efforts of of these sponsors, but I also think at the end of the day, it's just a messaging exercise. Jeannie, do you think that these issues? I mean, we know that abortion is certainly going to be a big one, but I'm wondering what, when it comes to things like same-sex marriage, like access to contraception. I mean, are those really going to be key issues in a midterm, especially one where the economy is still dominating everything? The economy is dominating, but it was fascinating today looking at some polling results. And the one area where the majority of Americans said either party was extreme was Republicans on this issue of abortion. And so I think what we're seeing here, to Rick's point, you know, the Democrats and and some Republicans obviously want to codify these things, but we're also midterm season, they want to paint the GOP as this extreme party. And so they're going to keep 
trying to get them on the record to say that they are going to oppose access to contraception, they're going to oppose same-sex marriage, because to many Americans that does, you know, wherever you stand on some of these issues, this party is starting to sound extreme. You know, this often discussed issue of a 10-year-old girl being forced to go over lines, state lines, to get an abortion when she becomes pregnant by a rapist. Those are the things that many Americans see as extreme. The Democrats want to talk about that in a midterm year. They feel the party being extreme and Donald Trump potentially running for president are the best two ways to get Democrats in a really tough midterm year for them out to the polls. And they're going to keep pushing on these things for that reason. And I mean, speaking of that, Jeannie, uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries agrees with you. Uh, His uh, interview with the Ed Board is now up on the terminal. Would encourage you to give it a read. Has some interesting things to say about what's going to go forward in the midterms. But Jeannie, Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We've got more sound on through the rest of this week. Joe Matthew is coming back. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.